Now, there are two questions that have captured the attentions of mankind throughout history and even in the present day. Where can happiness be found and how can it be obtained? I searched the internet and found some interesting articles that tend to provide answers to these questions. One journal article I came across said, money is an article which can be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven, a universal provider of everything except happiness. Another article I found described a survey in which participants were asked to name the salary they would need to achieve their dream of happiness. One group of people earning 25000 a year stated they would require around 50000 to achieve the happiness. Another group of people who earn 100000 income range claimed it would take twice their current income to fulfill their dream of happiness. Now, if we do the math, we've discovered for most people, they will need double their current income to make them happy. Because the prevailing belief in this world, the materials gain hold the golden key to happiness and fulfillment. The money, the more money a person has, the more good things they can buy, the more place they can travel whenever they want. And this is the mindset of this world. Having more money will lead to great happiness. The truth is that money cannot buy happiness. Having more material possession does not equate to happiness because we as created beings will never find answers um, to the true happiness in this world. Why is that so? It is because God is the creator of everything, and he alone knows the purpose of every created being. And think about this. Some of you are doing short catechism as your family devotions. And then when asked about the conditions when Adam and Eve were made, what's the answer? The answer is they are made holy and happy. A simple, precise answer, not only were Adam and Eve were made perfectly, they were also the happiest people on the planet. Why? Because they were walking with God, enjoying the company of God, and keeping the law of God. This brought them joy. Let us imagine that in the beginning, Adam had the privilege of working with God in the cool of the day and enjoying face-to-face -face direct communion with his creator. However, after fall, because of sin, Adam and Eve lost access to God, the source from which blessing and happiness flowed. And here we are, descendants of Adam by nature, also lost that source. Yet, seeking happiness is part of who we are. We are, by default, pleasure seekers. So here's a dilemma we are facing. If we are pleasure seekers, and if we seeking after creating things never satisfy, and if by nature we lost the fount of all blessings, then what do we do? Now today, as we examine the first eight verses in Psalm 119, I believe holy living is the answer to find the true blessing and happiness. That is, by keeping, guiding our soul from sins and maintaining the sweet communion with God. Now, with what I just said, 
Let us turn our Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 1 to 8. Psalm 119, verse 1 to 8. Let me read. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimony, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his way. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your status. That I should not be shamed when I look upon all your commandments. I should give thanks to you with the upper righteous of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I should keep your status. Do not forsake me utterly. Now, I structured my sermon by following the Psalms three looking ways. The first looking is looking toward those blessed people, as described in verses 1 to 3. The second looking is looking towards heaven, which is described in verse 4. And the final looking is looking towards himself with his own response, as described in verses 5 to eight. Firstly, the psalmist first looking, that is looking towards those blessed people, and he begins, how blessed. What's that mean? You know, we use this term a lot in a religion circle. What does that really mean? I believe the best way to describe blessed is to picture a person walking close to the Lord and experience this abundant life God promised, and God himself is the center, the source of all happiness. Why do I think that's the description? Because that's what the psalmist wants us to see. Let us read um, verse 1 again. And this time, please know the personal pronoun. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. Now picture this. The psalmist looking through the window, observing from a distance, and he discovers there's a group of people who are the happiest people because their lives are integrated by the law of God and whose way is blameless. Now, as far as this word blameless is concerned, it does not imply those people are sinless, but rather they have a pure and a sincere heart. Now, if a man whose heart is sincere, pure, and unmixed, then surely he will also walk right. Look at verse 1 again. It says, they walk in the law of the Lord. Remember what I said earlier about the psalmist doing a distance observation. Now, he wants to take the readers through his lens, through the lens of his own heart, a heart of a believer, as one who is born of God. He wants the readers to know that true happiness has no relationship with the things we gain, the things we achieve. But in God and God alone, it's about His way, His word, His promise. And think with me, if a person walks in the law of God, truly that person can be declared blameless. Enoch walked with God. He walked with God for 300 years. And what happens to him? He didn't die. God took him. How come? Because he walked in the law of God. God declared him blameless. Another example, Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It described him like this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his, name, in his time. 
Noah walk with God. If the first blessing are those who manifest their life through outward obedience by walking in the law of God, then here comes a second blessing. We continue our text, verse 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimony, who seek him with all their heart. Now, the word testimony in singular usually means the revelation of the will of, of God to mankind. Testimonies, when you use it as a plural, typically re- refer to a part of God's revelation, a promise that brings delight to the soul of believers. Now, please listen how the author expressed his delight to God's testimony in the later verses. He says in verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Now we understand the definition of the word testimonies, we can better comprehend what the psalmist meant in verse 2. The people he described are blessed because they want to keep God's testimonies. They desire to keep God's testimonies because they are treasures in their hearts. They value these treasures because they come from God. Therefore, they seek Him with all their hearts. Brother, can you see the double blessings that the psalmist is trying to demonstrate? A balanced Christian life, an experienced Christian life that moves the heart, the mind, and the soul. It's like the response in Psalm 27 verse 8, when the Lord says, seek my face. And they all respond wholeheartedly, your face I will seek. You see, a person who seeks God with all their heart, surely they do know unrighteousness. Now that brings us to verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. They also do know unrighteousness. They walk in His way. A regenerated heart will compare a person to love the sins of God and to hate the sins that God hates. He desires is to do no unrighteousness but walk in His way. He doesn't turn to the left or to the right but focus on God's way. He's a person who continuously guides his heart, abstain from all flesh lusts, because he is a born of God. Now, please listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his deeds abide in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. You see, brethren, he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. Because he had the seed of God, God is at work in the new birth. And God's seeds cannot make peace with continuous sinful behaviors. Let us consider glorious saints of the old in the Bible that are written for our instructions and encouragement. Consider Job, the righteous man. In Job 31 verse 1, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at the virgin? Joseph, in Genesis 39, was faced the temptation from Potiphar's wife, who was a seductive woman, desired to sleep with him. And despite of her persistence, Joseph responded by saying, verse 9, 
How could I do this great evil and sin against my God? This is not only one-time occurrence. She continued to nag him day after day and give her advance. You see, brethren, there are people they despise the pleasures that sin can bring because they find better pleasures in God. They walked almost uninterrupted communion with the Father, the Son, and Spirit, and enjoying unceasing sense of God's light. Now we need to pause here and ask a question. Does that mean Christians don't sin? Sadly, yes, Christians do sin. But think about the older saints who walked before us. They failed once and twice, but rose in repentance. Then, worked ever close to Christ. They fell, but they fell with much reluctance, with many grief. Then they rose with a clear conscience that their sins were forgiven. Then they press on to the final goal. So what can we learn from verse 3? For us, if we desire to do no unrighteousness, then our eyes must be fixed on Christ as we pursue Him. In Him, there is fullness of joy. In Him, there are pleasures forever. Even if we fall, let us not lose hope. Instead, let us rise up again through repentance and continue running the race. Yes, we may never reach perfection in the sight of the eternity. And we grow while eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. But let us not be deceived. Though sin dwells in our flesh, it does not reign over our flesh. And now comes to our second looking. The psalmist start looking towards heaven. Verse 4. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Know the psalms shift the personal from those to you. And who is you? It means God. You, God, has ordained or commanded your precepts. You know, this is a universal call, a call to all who walk on this planet. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your religion, whether you are atheist, Hindu, Catholic, Christians. It doesn't matter your age, your wealth status, or your IQ. We should respond that call. How should we respond? How should we keep them? Diligently. That word diligently in Hebrew language is emphatic. Keeping with all keeping, with exceedingly weight, even to some extent such a burden on our back. And we should keep all God's commandments diligently. But what is crazy in this wicked world we live in, people will say morality is just people's opinions. Or even so-called Christians, they read this verse and say, nah, we are under grace. The law of God no longer applies to the believers. Think with me, brethren. Adam and Eve were made perfectly. Perfect body, perfect mind, therefore perfect reasons. But they couldn't know why they were created. They couldn't know what they were to do, what they were not to do, unless somebody who told them. In other words, there's no need for Adam and Eve to figure them out the purpose of their existence because God gave them an objective direction that is the moral law of God, which we know as the Ten Commandments. And this law was written in their conscience. But after fall, God's moral law was no longer clear to men. It was obscured. 
and weakened by the sinful nature. Although it was obscure, the general impression of what law requires remained the minds of the fallen creatures. For example, God is to be worshipped. The parents should be honored, and taking someone's possession is unacceptable. And consider the time before the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. Wasn't Cain charged with murdering his brother? Wasn't Rachel charged with stealing the statues from the father? Wasn't not the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah doomed because of their sexual immorality? Why were they judged if no law was written in their conscience? The reason Moses was given the Ten Commandments was that God had to repeat His moral standard to us through His prophets, servants, and teaching to make it clear. Also, give no room for the fallen man to regard these moral standards as a matter of opinion. Even to the New Testament believers, God inspired word teach us that loving one another, given to the local church, is not a new commandment. It is what the moral law required from the beginning. Listen to First John chapter two verse seven. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. You see, the moral standard given to Adam harmonized the eternal and unchanging law of God. The moral law of God is eternal as it reflects the nature of God. Sadly, when a society openly rejects God and His moral law, they abandon the blessing that comes from God. This abandonment leads to a drastic moral decline in the younger generations that we now observe in this society. On the other hand, imagine what would be like if everyone obeyed the commandments, if everyone loved God and his neighbor as himself. If all children obey their parents, if all kept the Sabbath day holy, if no one took the name of the law in vain, if no one stolen or murdered or committed adultery, if no one covered neighbor's wife, house, or possessions, it would be wonderful. It would be perfect. It would be heaven. You see, God cannot change. Yes, we are under. The grace not no longer under the law, but we also need to know that grace never changes what is right, what is holy. What grace changes is our relation to what is right by giving us the desire and the power to do what is right. Let me put it this way: the moment we are saved, we are no longer under condemnation. For on the cross, our sins were laid upon Christ. He became sin for us, and He died for us. In the same way. When we were united with Him by faith, Christ's righteousness was attributed to us. Therefore, what the law required was fully satisfied. So the law no longer acts as a harsh taskmaster, constantly reminding us of our debts. Now, the law was sent as a friend to guide. Now, I believe the Psalms understood his positions towards the law of God. He started to respond in verse five, and now come to the psalm's final looking by looking himself with responses. In verse five, he starts to changing his personal pronoun again, moving away from the distant observer, observations, and now focus on himself. 
it was a turning point. It sets the tune for the rest of 172 verses through which his life was manifested by prayers, confessions, devotion, self-denial. And it all begin with these two words, oh, that. Verse 5, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your status. We tend to overlook these two words, but these two words speaks volumes. The psalmist look upon those people who were enviable, happy by walking, seeking, and keeping the law of God. Then he look upon heaven and saw the path ordained by the perfect God is the path to life. Then he prayed, oh, that. You know, there are many places in the scripture that have this term. For instance, Apostle Paul in Romans 11 after he encountered the awesomeness of God, the mystery of his wisdom, the, his mind was filled with theology, uh, doctrines from man's total depravity to justification by faith alone, then to the union of Christ, then to the elections. In verse 33, we read, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his way. Paul is expressing his fullness of, full of emotion, affection, and love, full of Christ. Now we look at these two words again, my brother. Do you see the affection and emotion behind these? And I do believe every believer has their own version of all that in different times and seasons. To some, the all that was manifest in praise, in thanksgiving. To some, maybe all that as a confession. To some, maybe as a wrestling and reason with God. Whatever the manifestation of that expression, one thing for sure, say, is turning to God in prayer. My brethren, how often do you pray like that? How is your love and affection towards Him when your mind was filled after doctrines, after doctrines? Is your heart ever moved when approaching the Lord like the way the psalmist was? When was the last time you said, Oh Lord, look my ways. My ways are so careless. My way seems to off the path I should be on. I wander away from you. Wander afraid away from the God I love. Wander away from the path I love. I was blinded by my sin. Sought after all kinds of lustful desire. Even the song we just said, we look for the worthy treasures and forsake kings of kings but now i want to return to you and let my ways be established to keep your status have you ever prayed like this and when was the last time you were broken by your sin oh brethren examine yourself ask your own soul am i moving forward in pursuing holiness or going backward Am I fighting for my sin or being apathy to the sins of God? At the same time, mark these words from our Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To be broken is a good thing. It means you are spiritual alive. It means God's spirit is working in you. So brethren, let us turn to the right path and follow Christ. Now, if we continue the status of God, continue walking in His way, then surely 
we will be able to say, like the psalmist said in verse 6, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. You know, isn't that a beautiful thing for all believers have the assurance of faith? But we cannot have the assurance of faith unless we diligently desire to God's, to do God's will and make certain of His calling. The New Testament writers constantly remind us it is a good thing to have the assurance of faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. So, brother, sister, have we considered the assurance of faith as a desired thing that is frequently mentioned by the New Testament writers? Because assurance of faith will enable you to be decisive. You know, a man with a conviction is a man who will work hard to move in that direction. Assurance faith will make a Christian an active Christian by walking in the law of God, seeking God with all his heart, and serve the local body of Christ. Assurance of faith will turn the misery of the deathbed into a smooth bed, then enable him or her to say, my flesh, my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Sadly, a heart occupied with the worldly things know nothing about heavenly joy, know nothing about heavenly peace, and many Christians go on living this doubting life, doubt, die with doubtfulness, and go to heaven with regrets. Now, don't get me wrong, the moment they are in heaven, they will be complete, perfect, lack nothing, fully satisfied, and full of joy in the presence of God. This is what I mean when I say regret. They would wish they had lived life without thoughts, without convictions, with convictions, in a life that was pleasing to God. So my question to you is, why would you live such a way, being indecisive, inconsistent living, seeking the temporary pleasure that sin brings you, and shrinking from mortify your flesh, shrinking from cutting your sins? You know, when Adam and Eve sing against God, they cover themselves with fig leaves because they were shamed. But that was not good enough. It was God who made them guard of skin from an animal. And that's not good either. Because what God did in the garden was only temporal, a shadow, a type, which ultimately, through the progressive revelation, it points to something greater. Someone who will cover his people with his own blood and not an animal. That greater is Christ. And if we have Christ who has covered us with all our shame, giving us a hope beyond the grave with his perfect sacrifice, then how much more shall we put on Lord, our Lord, and make no provisions to our flesh? Search your heart. Look at your life. Are you growing? Are you growing the love of Christ so that everything you do flow from the love of Christ? whether it is pursuing a godly life, raising your children to fear the Lord, or serving the brethren. And maybe learn from the wise men from the past. A Puritan said, Assurance is a most delicate plant. It needs daily, hourly watching and watering, tending and cherishing. 
So watch and pray. Make much assurance and always be on your guard. You see, assurance is a desire thing that we should all obtain by our diligence in keeping and walking in the law of God. Now the shame has vanished. The psalmist turns praise, prayers into praises. A person who prays for holy living will surely give thanks. I love the consistency of the scriptures. If you recall what Sam went through with us recently in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is praying the saints in Colossians. In verse 10, he's praying, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And here's the holy living. Then verse 12, do you remember what, what, what verse 12 said? Giving thanks to the Father, right? Now in our text, verse 6, we shall be not shamed when I look upon all your commandments. That's verse 6. Psalm is praying for holy living. And now verse 7, he says, I shall give thanks to you with the uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Judgment belongs to God alone. Our law says, vengeance is mine, he will repay. And the law will judge his people. And do you know how he will bring justice into this world? This is how he will do. At his first coming, to be a servant, gentle, lowly, full of compassion. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Our Lord has come to save his elect. He will save every one of them. No soul for whom he stood shall ever be cast away. He is the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And his sheep shall all be there. But at his second coming, when the full wrath of God, the final judgment of God, the lake of fire, pour out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who reject Christ, who trample under food God's grace in their rejection of Christ, we as a believer will give him the praise, the honor, glory. Because we were reminded we were like them who did the same thing and violated his commandment, his perfect law. But why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He chose us only by his mercy, only by his grace. He snapped you out of the darkness and he found you in the darkness moment of your life. You know, we will be filled with all kinds of emotions on the judgment day. Fear will be definitely one of them because we will see such terrifying judgment that no words can describe it. Thanksgiving will be that part of two because we see thousands upon thousands made the wretched choice, but we are invited to be his guests. And, and as we enter the rooms Christ has prepared for, for us, as we enter in, blessing, happiness, the crown of glory, the Lord will be with us. Oh, praise Him. Give thanks to Him. Praise Him in the night and in the morning. Praise Him. And finally, 
as we look our last verse together, verse 8. I shall keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I love the psalmist end the section like this. He prays in verse 5, May his ways be established to keep God's status. Then he said again, I shall keep your status. But this time, he prays for grace as he learns the righteous judgments of God. He realizes his inability. His resolution does not depend on his self-confidence, but utterly depend on God's grace. He understands his weakness as well as his vulnerability. Then he cries out, do not utterly forsake me. He pleads to God to hold him fast as he walk in his way. Oh, brother, sister, now it comes to the end of the sermon. I pray these eight verses may encourage you to help you seek true blessings from God. Maybe you are undergoing trials, illnesses, unpleasant treatment, and being discouraged. I pray the psalmist pray will be your praise to continue walking in his way, to seek him with all your heart and pursuing godliness diligently because there is an inseparable connection between diligence and assurance. And the desired assurance will assist you in saying that even if my earthly house fails, I have a building of God that will enable you to say that though he slays me, I will trust him. And maybe some of you are doubting, indecisive, spiritual slothfulness. You are unwilling to giving up. You have besitting sins in your flesh, in your mind. Take the warning from the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. The sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Or other translation, without holiness, no one shall see God. You know, faith in Christ will save you. But that's just the beginning. And yes, a living dog is far better than a dead lion. But why do you want to live a life so anxious, doubting, weak, tossed here and there by every wind of false doctrines? Remember, if you are a child of God, God's moral law is no longer an enemy to you but a friend to guide you, a light to enlighten your past, knowing that your life can be vigorous, active, and health. Pray. Pray like the psalmist. Oh, that my ways may be established in keeping your commandments. Pray to God, do not utterly forsake. Because a broke, broken and conscious spirit, God will not despise. And finally, to my unbelieving friends, the psalmist prayed at the end, do not utterly forsake me. But without Christ, God will forsake you for eternity because the same moral standard is upon you. God has ordained his precepts that you should keep them diligently. Through God's moral law, your conscience bear witness you are a vile sinner. The Lord is acting as a mirror to reflect who you are. You are murderers, fornicators, idolaters, liars, covetous, sexual immoral. That's who you are. And on the judgment day, when you start experiencing 
God's full wrath upon you. You will curse yourself on that day, and say to yourself, "I wish I was never born." But that's too late. Remember, in hell, worms that never die and fire is not quenched. And there's no repentance after you die. You will be resurrected at the same state when you die. You will die in this life in misery. When you rise again, you will suffer the torment in eternity. And if the torment in hell spends ten million years, you will tell yourself there is still hope in me. But there is none. It is eternal. My friends, it sounds hard to hear. Yes, it is. And it is the same thing to me when I say these things to you with pain and sorrow. If I mention hell, how would I not mention the gospel? Repent and believe in Jesus, and you shall be saved. God's moral law wants to humble you and let you to see that you need Christ, who is the only perfect lawkeeper. Think about the beginning of this psalm. It starts with how blessed, how happy are those who walk in the law of God. Have you thought about why the lawgiver inspired the writer to give to begin with blessings? Knowing this psalm is given to the lawbreakers, why not start with repentance or start with a holy living? Because he wants you to see, apart from him, your life is full of sorrow and misery. But Galatians chapter four, verse four and five. But when the fullness time came, God sent for His sons, born of the woman, born under the Lord. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Because Christ's active obedience by obeying the law of God and suffered the punishment due to his people's sin, so God exalt Christ and give him the right to redeem, to purchase his people, to adopt them as sons and daughters. And many of you have heard the gospel many times, but let me reason with you once more. Do you not see the blessing of your believing husband, believing wife, believing parents? When your strengths leave your part, when your minds leave your part, when your beauty and your youth leave your part, there'll be nothing to comfort you. But look at those blessed people who are received adoptions as sons and daughters. In every way, they were afflicted, but not crushed. In every way, they are perplexed. But not despairing, suffering illness, and yet continue trusting God and His sovereign plan. They are happy, they are blessed, and you know that because you are living with them. It is because Christ, because of Him who conquered death through the resurrection. Therefore, God gave Him honor and power and everlasting dominion, and He is willing to help anyone who call upon His name because He wants to restore you. And let you taste the true blessing and happiness from Him. Come to Christ, my friends. Come just as you are, and cry out to Him. Have mercy on you. He will give you a new desire, a new heart, to taste the true blessings and happiness, and eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Father. Lord, thanks for your word. Your word is clear. 
me. So the first a verse of Psalm 119, Lord, my brothers and sisters will have the conviction to live their life in pursuing holiness. Because what a blessing that you give us with the assurance of faith. That in the end, we will say what Paul says. I know there's a crown of glory awaits for me. What a beautiful thing we can say that. At the same time, Father, I pray that your spirit was more walking among us, walking in saving grace and save the people who not yet come to you in repentance and faith. Have mercy upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.